Good morning, everyone. If I sound like Kermit the Frog or something similar to that, please be patient with me. Um, I had like a terror. I don't mean this as a complaint, just a fact. I had a like nasty cold this week, and uh, things started to clear out, and I think I, I think I'm okay. All right? You might want to stay away from me, but I think I'm okay. All right. Well, as father of uh, three daughters, uh, I've had the joy of going through two weddings uh, from a slightly different perspective. Uh, weddings are beautiful celebrations. They're uh, something that I, I, I'll be honest with you, for years I said I really don't like weddings. And I don't know if something happens to you after you turn 50 and you become a little more sentimental and uh, you start to value things in a different way. And I, I have to be honest with you and say, like, I now look forward to going to weddings because there is a unique beauty and a unique uh, affection that is shared in that context that is really unparalleled. It's also true that some weddings can have interesting fails. I mean, that are sometimes just downright hysterical, right? Uh, weddings tend to be austere events, right? Where the pastors, I type out every word I'm going to say for a wedding. Okay, I'm that terrified of what might, might happen if I don't. I think for one of the couples in this room, I used the wrong name for the bride. That's just downright embarrassing. I remember a guy uh, who's a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, a rather affluent area, telling the story of, of wedding fails that he had been involved with. He talked about, uh, you know, the fact that weddings are very competitive in the Washington, D.C. area. If you're in the context of affluence, there's a tendency to want to outdo everybody else, drive a nicer car, have a better wedding, nicer dress. You know what I'm saying, right? In that setting, he talked about one, and this wasn't a fail, but this is one of the circumstances. The guy was a pilot. So for his uh, wedding departure, he and his wife were pronounced as man and wife and they, as they began down the aisle, a helicopter swooped into the parking lot and picked them up and took them away. And that's kind of cool, right? That's, that's, that's hard to top. He also told the story about a wedding where a couple was getting married in a very tall cathedral-type building, and they decided that this white dove fad that uh, had become very popular would be a nice accent to their wedding. And so they... Uh, hired a company to bring in whatever the number of doves was, I don't know, but up in the peak of the cathedral, they hung this cage that had doors on the bottom that would deploy, and the doves would swoop down and out the door, hopefully not drop anything on the way, right? So, <laughs> happens to be a warm day, and the pastor pronounces the bride and groom, the, <laughs> the cage to the cage open, and doves plummet down to the ground, overcome by exhaustion and heat. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll, I have a cynical side. I would love to have been there. I just, <laughs> there's something about that that would excite me. I tell people what weddings, I like it trimmed down. I don't like those little kids walking down. I think they call them ring bearers. They make me paranoid, okay? Because I... When I'm doing a wedding, I want everything to go smoothly, and you know that that's not normal for me. So when it happened, it's kind of like, okay, God, thank you. That was, that was actually a good, smooth wedding. But those kids, you don't know what they're going to do, okay? I remember my daughter's wedding. Becca's like, she, Becca was more of the, I don't know if she'll ever hear this. 
She was more the bridezilla type. And my Jessica was like, you can organize my wedding. I'm getting my flowers at ShopRite. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and Becca's like, you can't get your flowers at ShopRite. And Jesse's like, yes, I can. So <laughs> the, little, the little guy never came down the aisle. Everybody waited and waited. And Copper's like, I'm not going down the aisle. I'm not walking down. So I'm terrified of that kind of stuff. So at weddings, things can uh, go wrong. Today's text John chapter 2, if you would turn there with me, is about a wedding failure, a crisis. John chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 1. The text says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus replied, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, washing each one holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water to the brim. So they filled them. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Weddings in the ancient world were a big deal. I mean, they're a big deal in our culture, but in the ancient world, they were, they were massive in terms of importance. The community was much more concerned about the group than it was about the particular individuals. In our culture, it's very bride-centered, and the groom is kind of typically, he obligatorily comes along, okay? Uh, but in the ancient world, it was a celebration of, of, of the community. It was broad. It was impressive. It was important because it celebrated the next generation for an agricultural world where people didn't move away. But they stayed, and their life, their marriage, their offspring was critical to the survival of the community. So the wedding celebration in that context, if you remember this, lasted for seven days. That's a tradition that I'm glad ended before I was born, okay, and had daughters, all right? But that's the way that it was. It was an expensive, all-out celebration. And in that context... Something fascinating happens in this story. It's important to note first, as I move into this, that you're in the third day of the first week of Jesus' public ministry, which means this. John chapter 1 through 3 are Jesus moving into the public eye, out of the obscurity of Nazareth, at 30 years of age, deemed an adult in Jewish culture. He moves into the next phase of his life for which he had been preparing eternally. 
And so you have this fascinating movement. I want you to miss that this event takes place at the inauguration of Christ's public ministry and is, in fact, as verse 11 tells us, the first sign that Jesus does. Okay, so it's important to have that as context. This is the event selected for the launch of Christ's public ministry. Through this miracle that he performs, notoriety will begin to rise, people will begin to be curious, and it will be impossible for Christ to hide any longer. Not that he has been, but it will be impossible for him to maintain an obscure life. This is coming out and moving towards a definitive end. So that's what's happening. So the setting is a wedding at Cana. It's about eight miles from Nazareth. It is a notably unremarkable place. There is nothing important about Cain. It was recently discovered through archaeological digs. It it didn't leave a big footprint. It was difficult to find, but it was uncovered a few years back and is now known to have been about eight miles from Nazareth where Jesus was from. The text also tells us that the guest present involves Mary, uh, some of the disciples, and obviously people from within the town. That's what's stated very, very clearly. And then four to six disciples of Jesus early in his ministry. It becomes apparent as you work through the text that Mary has some kind of deeper relationship with these people than merely a friend. All right, and that'll come up when you see when there's a need for wine because the wine has run out, Mary takes personal responsibility to address the issue. Okay, so she's probably acting on behalf of the bridal family and the groom's family to reduce the level of shame that they are beginning to experience in this crisis. This event, this miracle, when it occurs, brings Jesus into the public eye. Now, here's what I want you to think about. There are eight miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. Eight. Okay, I can do that. I almost got it wrong the first time. Okay, there's eight miracles. This, I didn't rehearse that. Okay, eight miracles. Now, if I said to you, cold, how many miracles do you think are listed in the Gospel of John? And I gave you a multiple choice, 8, 12, or 15. Can I suspect that most of you would guess the higher number? Right? And secondly, it's fascinating that the first one is, is at many levels amazing, but it really meets a very basic need, right? Is that agreeable? Okay. It's miraculous. It's creative. But it, it just satisfies the temporary need. There's nothing. It's not a dead person being raised from the dead. It's not a blind person who never saw seeing. That will happen later. This is an inaugural sign that happens to have a certain setting. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The tension in the story is that in verse 3, the wine is gone. In ancient culture, in Jewish culture throughout the Old Testament, wine was central to very positive and powerful celebrations. This in the ancient world, early on in the week of the wedding celebration, would have been a major social crisis. The culture was a culture of honor and shame. Respecting others, preparing well for your guest was expected of everyone. It's not the case in the culture that we live in. So we kind of have to slip back into the mindset of the first century and understand what this would have felt like for the family. Okay, this is 
a major problem in and the other fact is that it happens in a small town. This won't be forgotten. Okay? I mean, I've had small crises in my life, like out in public, out on the street. Uh, Dave Rader was with me one day, and we had all the wood for a deck set in the back of my dad's truck, right? And went to Home Depot, got it loaded up, and as I'm leaving the parking lot, forgetting that I have a plastic bed liner in the truck with 35 16-foot boards on it, I step on the gas. And I have a crisis on my hands. I don't have any wood left in my truck. And the road looks like, it looks like uh, those pickup sticks are tossed all over. Honest. Okay? In my pride, you know what I was worried about? It's kind of like, look around. Did anybody see that happen? <laughs> and if they didn't, let's get it cleaned up as quick as possible, right? That's in this culture. In the ancient culture, honor, shame, respect for age, meeting people's needs effectively was just part of the fabric of the culture, and it was expected. And a failure like this would never be forgotten for this family. It would leave them with a permanent mark. And God forbid if they have another daughter or son getting married. Because you can imagine what people will be saying to them in that setting. So the tension, it, the problem cannot be hidden. The proposed solution comes from Mary. Mary moves into the presence of her son. And she says, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus interprets that to mean, do something about it, right? They have no wine implies that Jesus should use some of his amazing capacities that Mary, for some reason, has already concluded abide in him. So one of the questions that emerges is, where does Mary get this assurance that there is something special and unique about the person of Jesus? All right? Do you think it's possible that the virgin birth might have some influence on that conclusion? All the ladies said, amen. Okay? Mary got a divine message from God. Mary was a virgin who gave birth to a son, and she knew it. And she knew from the angels that there was something unique and glorious and saving about the life of Jesus. And the, here's what the Bible says, Luke 2. Mary took all this in, the shepherds come, they praised to the highest heavens, the angels sing. Mary comes to a conclusion about her son that she treasures in her heart. A belief that Jesus could solve problems that there was something unique and unbelievable about his person. And that kind of affects her view of who her son is. Jesus' response is, can we say surprising? Often people have interpreted the response of Jesus to be disrespectful. But it really is, can be translated as something like this. Woman, why involve me? What do I have to do with that? That is a temporal concern. And my mission has eternal concerns. Okay, so there's a bit of a 
of a pushback from Christ, a mild rebuke, not quite dismissive, not disrespectful, which is how often it's read. It's it, 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 it indicates at some level that something else is on the mind of Christ at that wedding that is keeping him from being overly concerned about the immediate physical need that is present. And remember, it is the inauguration of his public ministry that is moving towards a decided fate and end. Okay? You'll remember from Luke 2, the circumstance when the family of Jesus is in Jerusalem, and they begin their journey back home, and it becomes apparent that Christ is not amongst the entourage. Uh, I remember my parents leaving me at church. I was one of four kids. Okay, and I remember my parents thinking everybody was in the car. I remember my brothers letting them think that everybody was in the car because I was the youngest of three boys, okay? And Jesus is left behind in that kind of a setting. It's just like, where's Jesus? I I don't know. I thought you had him. Well, I don't. So they get back to Jerusalem. And Mary's, he's 12 years old. Mary goes to the temple, directed there. He's in the temple. She goes there, and she finds Jesus teaching the scribes. She rushes in. Jesus, we left, and you weren't with us. I'm terrified. And what is Jesus' response? I had to be about my father's business. Because Jesus did not come to give fullness to Mary's life as her son. Not his primary mission. His primary mission was to do his father's will. And that drives the entirety of his life. Jesus is clarifying for Mary in this setting that his ultimate allegiance as he moves out of the house, right, into the public eye, I don't need a helicopter mom. I am on a mission. And my ultimate allegiance now is to my heavenly father who sent me. That's powerful, isn't it? And and Mary is in this process that every mom goes through. I'm kind of like, get out there and be a taxpayer, because one day I'm going to retire. My wife is much more delicate in that release of our children, right? Because for a mom, this is a harder thing. Jesus is simply clarifying, Mary, there is a higher cause that is for your ultimate good rather than your physical good that will be fulfilled as I do my Father's will. Now, verse 5 is fascinating because now Mary's going to walk away. Maybe feeling a little bit stung by the correction. Here's what the text says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know about you, but in that, just that, that simple statement, I find the faith of Mary in the person of her son, Jesus Christ, affirmed so beautifully. If he tells you to do something, be sure that you listen to everything he says. Verse 6 then makes this observation in the context. It says, nearby stood six water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. 
So there are six stone pots. The text gives us no indication whatsoever of why there are not five or four or six. It's probably simply an indication that the writer is not making up a story to make Jesus look awesome. He's telling a very simple story and acknowledging what would be simple historical facts that a narrator would note as he looks at the setting of the story. He's recording what he saw. So he doesn't attach any significance to the number. However, he does note that the water pots are used for ceremonial cleansing. That is, they symbolize the dead Jewish system that was leaving people in bondage. These pots were held water that was used so before they ate, there were certain precautions and certain manners in which one would wash their hands to prepare for eating. And if you didn't do that, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, would come down on you like a load of bricks, giving you guilt and bondage and regret and sorrow. It's those pots in this context that Jesus, and the best word I could come up with for this, and I, I just, he recycles them, but he reappropriates them. They used to be for that purpose. They are symbols of the old system. I'm going to take them and fill them with something new that will reappropriate them for the purposes of God. Okay? So, so you get that little bit of a, of a hint. Jesus is sending off the old, dead, enslaving rituals and religion that create guilt and steal joy from people, leaving them burdened and hopeless. And in this context, he will make in them a symbol of hope and joy and deliverance for the nation of Israel. Verse 7. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Meaning, there is no mistaking that these jars are full to the top. There's no trick. Jesus is protecting this bona fide circumstance. Filled with 120 to 180 gallons of water. And then there's the odd request from Jesus that begins to bring the resolution to the crisis. Okay, I think the resolution of the crisis begins when Jesus acts and says, do something. And they, listening to Mary, do what? They fill the pots. Okay? The odd request of Christ. And I love this. Because if you're the servants, you're kind of like, okay, something's probably going to happen next. And Jesus says to them, draw some water out of those pots. And they obligatorily go to the pots and draw out. And the text doesn't give us any insight because I don't think it's the main purpose of the story of this account. It doesn't tell us what they saw when they looked in the pot. It doesn't tell us what was in the, the vessel that they used to draw the water. It doesn't tell us. All we know is that there's this odd request in a sense, to point out how it happened. Verse 9. They did so, and apparently, the text is very shortened, they go to the master of ceremonies, who is not the groom, who's responsible ultimately for the provisions here, but they go to the master of ceremonies, and they give him some of this wine that Christ has made, miraculously. And the response of the Mater D, if you will, of the manager of this banquet, the master, when he tasted it, he did not realize where it had come from. Now, here's what I suspect. I suspect that this man was fully aware that there was a crisis at the wedding that he was in charge of. Word is traveling around. They're running out of wine. 
and that social stigma is becoming a very real possibility, suddenly the problem is resolved and wine is brought to the master of ceremonies and he partakes of it not knowing where it came from. He goes to the groom and says, what are you thinking? The, the normal custom in a wedding is to serve the best wine first and then when people have had a bit too much to drink, then you bring out the lower class wine. And, and I, I love this. Because what they realize, without having any clue as to how it happened, is that the crisis that brought social embarrassment had been resolved in an unbelievable way. And here, here's my favorite phrase in this whole text. They didn't know where it came from. But the servants knew. And to me, that I'll come back to that in a moment. I think that is one of the most powerful statements in this passage of Scripture. The outsiders, the helpers, knew exactly what had happened. They had front row seats to this powerful circumstance. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. What is the effect of this miracle? At the surface level, it's a very temporary result, isn't it? The wine that was lacking is now present, and that's it. But that benefit is temporal, right? That's not a permanent fix for people's lives. That's a temporal solving of thirst. Why did it happen? What's the purpose for this set of circumstances? Okay, and I'm going to give you three thoughts real quick. The first one deals with the question, why is this miracle related to wine? The best. Why? Okay, so let me give you this suggestion. First of all, I want to say this. Scripture clearly condemns the abuse of alcoholic beverages, right? It's unequivocal and clear in its condemnation of that. While at the same time... Its use is not forbidden. In fact, its use is often noted in Scripture as a picture of wealth and of celebration, of joy, particularly in relationship to the nation of Israel. So why this? Why this here? This Old Testament symbol of joy and blessing that ultimately is picked up by Jesus in Matthew 26 when he says, I will drink this with you anew in the kingdom. So this text at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of time are drawn together by their connection to drinking wine that is a, a, a means of celebration, joy, and deliverance. Okay, so just, that's a, a little background. Now I want to read for you from Isaiah, just a quick passage from Isaiah 25. I want you to listen because this is the inbreaking of Christ's messianic ministry. He is the ultimate deliverer for Israel, not the physical deliverer for Israel. Listen to what this text says. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people and a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds peoples, the sheet that covers nations, holds them in bondage. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. 
He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isaiah 55, come unto me all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to the waters, you who have no money, no means to purchase. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Do it freely. Okay, so there's, there's context in the Old Testament for a connection to this miracle that talks about celebration, redemption, overwhelming joy for people who had been in the darkness. So why, why the picture of wine here? It's to point to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate messianic deliverer. And the fullness of that's going to become clear as we work through the Gospel of John. Here's the truth. Wine brings temporary pleasure, but Jesus brings lasting joy. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. That these things were part of celebrations, but they were never meant to be the ultimate celebration. They point to something greater. And Jesus is the one that is greater. The first miracle in this context says that Jesus is the source of everlasting joy. And I think it's tied to this beautiful, beautiful picture of this miracle. Everything else in life will let you down. Carmel, you mentioned this in worship this morning. Your status, your appearance, your marriage, your job, your latest purchase. Only Jesus truly satisfies. And that's a lesson that begins to emerge from this text. Why related to wine? Because the wine in this context is provided by Christ from an everlasting supply that will never let you down. Okay? Weddings are one thing. They are not the end all. They're a place where the power of Christ is revealed. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is why does Jesus use the word, my hour has not yet come? Now, I've always thought historically, and to be honest with you, I've always thought that Jesus didn't want to do a miracle yet. That, that, that the hour for him to begin to perform signs was not yet come. But as you read through the Gospel of John, you'll understand that the hour of Christ refers ultimately to his passion and suffering. It speaks about the cross. John 12, John 13. Jesus said, my hour has come. And when he talks about his hour in John 12, he's referring to the last week of his life when he will suffer and ultimately be beaten and hung on a cross to pay the price for our sin. His hour, that hour, had not yet come. The miracles are all in service to something else. And that is to the proclamation of the excellence and worth of Jesus as Savior and Healer. My hour has not yet come. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That is the hour. That is the purpose. That is the aim for which Christ has come. Would you think with me real quickly a, a, a very interesting thought? Pick this up from a book by Tim Keller. He asked this question. He asked the question, what do most people think about at weddings? What do most people think about at weddings? And the answer, I think, is accurately stated as mine. Right? It, it, it's, it, it's powerful in its symbolism, but it causes you to think back to your own personal experience. If you're single, it causes you to think, what will mine be like? Will that be a joy and a pleasure that will be part of my life? Does that make sense? 
I think we all have a natural tendency to, to think in that way. Here's the truth from the New Testament. A wedding is the dominant symbol that's used to speak of the relationship between Jesus and the church. So the question then becomes, when Jesus comes to Mary, and, or when Mary comes to Jesus, and Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus says, so? And you gotta, you, you're kind of like, okay, why does he do that? And I think the answer is bound up in the analogies that are used here. His mind is on his hour. His mind is on the purpose for which he came, was not, which was not your temporal needs meeting, but the forgiveness of your sin. And Jesus, as he sits at that wedding, is thinking what it will cost for his bride to be cleansed, redeemed, purchased by the blood of the Lamb. That his aim is not to fix a temporary celebration, although he will. Because he aims to say how important marriage is in the proclamation of his hour and purpose. She is focused on temporary. Jesus is focused on the eternal. He could not be at a wedding without thinking about being, with, without thinking about and being preoccupied with his purpose, saving his bride. And this miracle at the wedding brings Jesus into the public in, 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 in a way that can't be stopped. This opens the floodgates. This goes in three years from this miracle through seven other miracles in the context of the Gospel of John to the cross, to the hour for which Christ came. Jesus will later say, Father, if it's possible... Let this cup, this cup of wrath, which is a symbol from Isaiah, let it pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. I've come to do your will. Jesus, Father, if it's possible, let it pass. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what's best for my people. So that while Jesus is going through all the iterations of the public ministry, in the background is the hour, the purpose for which he came. You'll find that people try to kill him off. It's in John, it's in John chapter, oh gosh, I can't remember. The, there, in, in John, there's a chapter where people try to come and, and to seize Jesus. But the text says, interestingly, they could not lay hold of him for his hour had not yet come. He is able to slip out and you're thinking, how could he do that? Was it some miraculous thing? It was simply the purpose and plan of God. The hour had not yet come. What hour? The hour of his death that would purchase and provide my ultimate freedom and forgiveness. This, his death, his hour, was the driving reality, the preoccupation of Jesus' life, the cross. It may be true of every ministry that we as a church participate in. The hour for which Christ came is the fundamental and most important truth that we must proclaim. And it comes up at a wedding. It comes up in the picture of the wine. I think the other reason it's launched as a wedding, at a wedding is because Jesus is the ultimate groom. It's fascinating as you read through this story. The, the groom in the context is helpless to meet the need that is present. He's helpless. There's nothing he can do. He is desperate and in need. Does that sound familiar? 
You can't have Christ meet your greatest need until you realize that you can make no contribution to what he aims to do in your life through the cross. And when you come to that conclusion that my effort is not only inadequate, it is also unnecessary. And you flee to Christ and say, Jesus, I have a problem. I am a sinner. You are a great Savior. Meet my need. You know, in this story, the groom is delivered from social embarrassment. But in the ultimate story, in the hour, we are delivered from the wrath of God that we deserve. Because Jesus drank that cup so that you and I could drink the cup of rejoicing. So that we could be children of God invited to a later wedding date. Can I read for you as I close from Revelation 21? John writes the Gospel of John, and then John writes the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Revelation 21.1 says. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Picture, people of God. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things have passed away. Now, at a wedding, one of the reasons I I enjoy doing weddings, there are a lot of work, but At some level, I enjoy doing them. There's a perspective that you as a pastor have that the average person in the crowd doesn't have. Okay? You stand beside the groom-to-be, and the bride, radiant and beautiful. Never seen a bride that wasn't absolutely beautiful. Arrayed in the most gorgeous garments, uh, you know, proper accessories, everything just as it should be. What I tend to watch for is the moment that the eyes of the bride connect to the eye of the groom. Because in that moment, in the purity of that moment, undisturbed by all the troubles of life that come, that radiant bride is is united with the man of her dreams and the assumption, the picture, the promises are powerful. But here's the truth. That moment, okay, that receiving of the bride, that's what's pictured here in Revelation. The difference in context is that we are the bride of Christ. We are united to him in a way that is to affect us emotionally, truly, actually, in a redeeming way, okay? So every time you're at a wedding, and every wedding should proclaim this wedding amongst two people, Danielle and Chris, okay, last May, this wedding is a picture of an eternal reality. And that's why his first miracle and the launch of his ministry is aimed at the end game and pictures the end game an eternal joyful celebration in a permanent relationship that thrills and fills the heart with everything it's ever desired and longed for. That's the picture that Jesus paints for his people. In this very, very beautiful context. 
I'm going to make this as an observation quick and then I'll close. I could have preached this text at the human level. Okay? And I wrote this out. You have problems. You have needs. You're coming up a little short in life. Jesus can meet your needs. And have totally missed the point of this text. This text does not aim to meet a temporal need, though it does. It is a, what's what's verse 11 say? Look at what verse 11 says real quick. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, in a obscure town, was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Folks, I want to tell you something. My title is inappropriate, my sermon is inappropriately titled. I call it the first miracle of Jesus. It's not that. And I did that on purpose, so I come back and say, I was wrong on that. It's the first sign. A sign is a symbol. Symbols speak. Weddings speak. Wine in the Old Testament speaks of the glory of Christ and of the hope for people who are broken, who have needs, who have crises in their life. But you must realize that your ultimate crisis is that you fall short of the glory of God. And that in Jesus Christ, you can find the hope that you've been longing for. You can find the forgiveness that you desperately need from the guilt that haunts your life. Out of those old religious pots comes something that is symbolic ultimately of the blood of Christ. This cup, the new covenant in my blood, brought through the hour that I will face, will free you from your sin. Folks, that's the message that God has so graciously given to us. John 20, 31 tells us, There were many things that Jesus did that I could write. This is what John says. Many things Jesus did. But these eight miracles are recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of Old Testament hopes, the Son of the living God. Not to wow. Folks, please understand how I say this. I get so irritated by flashy miracle workers. The aim of Christ's work in miracles is not to solve temporal problems, though he does and can. I'm not saying he doesn't. But the aim of all of that is to point to the ultimate miracle of the new birth that's going to come up in the next chapter. If he could do that physical miracle, then he can perform the ultimate miracle that delivers me from the guilt of my sin and gives me the hope of eternal life. His aim was so that by faith you may enter, apart from your personal effort, into the family of God. Ed Clowney, reflecting on this, note, on this text, notes that in the midst of all the joy of that wedding feast, while others were drinking festal wine, Jesus was in a sense tasting the bitterness of the death that lay before him so that we don't have to, his hour. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding, sipping the coming sorrow, I want you to listen to this. He sat in the midst of the joy of that celebrative wedding, sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amongst this world's sorrows, hopeful. Sipping the coming joy. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ was conscious for three years in public ministry, that he must drink the cup of God's wrath so that I would not have to. He stood in my place. He took what I deserved. 
and he cleanses me from my sin and credits me with righteousness that I could never achieve. What a Savior. What a Savior. And all through his public ministry, he was sipping the cup of coming sorrow. It was the determined path and purpose of his life that he was, in fact, the Redeemer sent by God to change my life and your life, not temporally, but eternally. I close with this thought. The servants knew. The servants knew. The outsiders, sometimes you think, maybe I'm too far from God. Maybe I wasn't born in the right family. Maybe I didn't go to the right church. Maybe, maybe, maybe. The servants knew. And his disciples believed in him. His disciples placed trust in him. Repeatedly, they affirmed, Jesus, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. So here's my question for you this morning. If you know Christ, what circumstance do you think you're facing that he can't resolve? What crisis, what embarrassment in sin that he can't deliver you from completely? Once you know there's hope in Christ. And if you've never trusted Christ, this text and on and on and on are going to give you reasons to consider trusting in the one who wants to bring you into his family, make you part of his bride, and one day receive you powerfully and fully in the consummation of all things. That's the relationship that he desires to have with you this morning. Father, help us as we contemplate such a text to capture the glory of this. So powerful it was that the disciples caved under the overwhelming glorious weight of this moment. When your glory was revealed, they fell to their knees and believed. God, let us, as your church, be overwhelmed afresh as we read through these texts and see the evidences of your power, might, and glory revealed through your Son. May we fall to our knees and believe and receive everything that you have for us as your church. May we not live in weakness. May we not live in shame. May we not live in fear because the Lamb has overcome. And Jesus, thank you that you are the great bridegroom. And thank you that you intend the very best for us and that you will do the very best for us, though we are at best undeserving. Blessed as we respond to your word this morning, I pray. I ask for these blessings in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.